hits to her ribcage and thigh. In addition to that, she had a gnarly bite mark on her hand. Nevertheless, she smiled as she pointed her fingers like a pistol at the frenzied Jack. She said before blasting. The fuck? Kale stammered out, staring down at the unsightly wound. No, that's not good. Hugo exhaled. This situation has become bothersome. He went back after the gladiator, sending a ruthless barrage of strikes his way. There was an evident skill gap between the two voids, with Hugo landing about 90% of his attacks. On the other hand, the gladiator only managed to land three or four clean hits of his own. Nevertheless, each of them dealt far more damage than any of Hugo's. After about a minute of fighting, Hugo's left arm was completely mangled. His right ribcage had been shattered, and the entire right side of his face was burnt. The gladiator had also taken a fair amount of damage, but not nearly enough to even slow him down. Kale groaned as he attempted to insert himself back into the fight, but that task wasn't an easy one. He could barely move with his torso just about completely destroyed. I suppose this must be my final trial, Hugo said somewhat solemnly. What the hell are you talking about? Kale asked, still groaning. And then, for the first time since we began watching, Hugo smiled. God wills it. Using his good arm, Hugo removed the upper section of his robe, revealing a pale, mutilated, scar-ridden body beneath. He muttered another prayer before looking up at the ceiling, tears now swelling up in his eyes. Thank you. He muttered. Along with his eyes, the scars on his body began glowing a deep red. Tricks won't be enough. The gladiator thundered before swinging his blade at Hugo's neck. I don't think I managed to catch exactly what happened next. However, I was certain that I was about to see a head rolling. The gladiator's blade shattered into what looked like a million pieces. At first, I didn't even notice the gaping hole in the gladiator's chest. The gladiator was interrupted by his neck being brutally cranked to the side. As the flaming behemoth dropped, so did Hugo. By then, Kale had regenerated to the point of being able to walk. He stumbled over to the near comatose bishop. What the fuck was that? He asked, half grinning. I detached myself from my earthly limitations. An egregious sin, but I needed to fulfill my holy mission. Well, shit. That's pretty cool, I guess. Not your psycho mission, but the whole detachment thing. He held out his hand in an attempt to help Hugo get up. However, Hugo shook his head in response. This is as far as I go. Not something I can recover from. I only have judgment to face now. Oh, shut the fuck up, Kale said, picking up Hugo's limp body and lumbering it over his shoulder. We'll find you some painkillers, and you'll be back on your feet in no time. Why would you help me? Hugo asked. You understand what I'm after, don't you? My ideals. Well, I don't think I could have handled the gladiator on my own, so I guess I owe you, you crazy fuck. He looked over at Hugo and grinned. And who knows? Maybe you'll learn something. Yeah, there's a lot of scum in the world, but there's also a lot of beauty. We don't have to destroy it all. That's... Hugo passed out before he could finish the thought. Still carrying him over his shoulder, Kale took off running down another corridor. I did a quick sweep of the other monitors. Satanbot had taken out two more of the lower-tier voids, while Morgi was engaged with a high-hurricane void named the Mechanic, 6 foot 5, 196 centimeters, 270 pounds, 122 kilograms. Like the name suggested, he was a very large, burly man in a mechanic's outfit that enjoyed obliterating skulls with blunt tools. It's a real ruthless guy. On another monitor, the undead Nazi had just finished slicing the shit out of the devil nurse, who was a mid-tsunami. So that's 12 down. 
I thought. Twenty left. The shit show wasn't even anywhere near done. Check it out, Sandu said. There's still four voids who haven't escaped yet. Sure enough, he was right. First off, there was the Titan. Fifteen feet, seven inches. 475 centimeters. 1,438 pounds, 652 kilograms. A colossal entity with destructive capabilities that were nigh impossible to deal with. It was a humanoid with a immensely muscular frame, further accentuated by the fact that there wasn't an ounce of fat on his entire body. Its harder-than-steel skin was reddish and cracked all over, with a roadmap of razor-like veins bulging at every square inch. And then there was the face. It had six sets of glowing blue eyes and a mouth full of fangs that exposed gums that were caustic to the touch. His holding cell, if you could even call it that, was a bit more fortified than the rest. I'm under-exaggerating, of course. It was fortified to goddamn hell. No electronic locks connected to a central system either, which is probably what caused the breach to begin with. Good thing, too. He was a low asteroid. The next one up was the Warden. Eight foot seven, 261 centimeters, 435 pounds, 197 kilograms. Ironically enough, this guy apparently used to run a prison of his own. What kind of prison that might be was beyond me. He had pale white skin, shadow-like eyes, long, slicked-back silver hair. His trench coat was long and perpetually bloody, sweeping the floor as he walked. I've heard stories about the guy. Supposedly, he killed upwards of 700 prisoners during a breach at his prison, managing to come out unscathed from a devastating explosion afterwards. He was as dangerous as a void could get without being considered asteroid tier, being a high hurricane. Funny enough, his cell was wide open, with guard bodies and destroyed mech suits littering the space, but instead of getting up and walking out, he simply sat, expression devoid of anything at all, like it usually was. Obviously, he was up to nothing good. The next one was quite the doozy, the strongest void in the entire chasm, in fact. He went by a simple moniker, the Calamity of Earth, or just the Calamity for short. Its gender was unknown, its height and weight unknown, appearance unknown to everyone except the top officials overseeing this entire fucking operation. Hell, we don't even know where it was kept. The only thing we had to monitor was a simple panel containing three lights, green, safe, still contained, yellow, break out in progress, evacuate immediately, and red, breached, too fucking late. What did we know about this thing? <laughs> Nothing, save for the fact that a breach would most likely result in a global catastrophe. Of course, it was a high asteroid, the only high asteroid in fact. And then there was the last still captive void, but unlike the three overpowered monsters I've already talked about, he was a lot different. The kid was five foot six. 168 centimeters, 142 pounds, 68 kilograms. As his name implies, the kid was just that. A kid, from his appearance. He couldn't have been much older than 16 or 17 at most. The only thing we knew about him was that he apparently had extraordinary, undisclosed abilities. Abilities he used to slaughter his entire village back in Kerala, India. But who the hell knows what actually happened to me and nearly every other guard, he just seemed like your average, meek teenager. In fact, we rarely ever exerted caution around him. Unlike the rest of the voids in here, he just did as he was told, always with this incredibly sullen expression on his face. I suppose that I can't blame him, given the circumstances. We didn't even bother putting a threat level on him. Nevertheless, we were instructed to keep him there. 
There's a lot of stuff going on here in the chasm that us guards don't quite understand. I make no reservations about that. I know for a goddamn fact that not everything we're doing here is saintly work. Do a lot of voids in here deserve to be locked up? Not even. They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. I never understood why we bothered holding the more malicious ones, using taxpayer money just to keep them alive. And then there were the ones who I wasn't quite sure belonged here at all. Did they even do anything wrong? Who knows, but one thing was for sure. They were different. Exceptional, I guess. The subjects of state curiosity. I always tried suppressing these thoughts. I mean, who the hell was... Hey, what's up, guys? Hope you're doing good out there, out there, out there in the sandbox. You guys will be getting home in no time. Don't even trip. You guys, you guys got this. Do your thing, get your groove on. Do the, do the, do the rock and roll, rock and roll American dance. Hard to step, the, the two step boogie. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Yeehaw, yeehaw, you are the brain. But we were, uh, we had this one thing going on yesterday or earlier, so, or yeah, earlier, so I'm gonna go ahead and put the continuation of that portion on right now. Vietnam War 1970 CBS camera rolls as platoon comes under fire. This is the part where it's like deep in the shit. Like they're shooting at each other and shit. All crazy like. All crazy deep in the jungle getting slapped by rice patty. Then a quick lunch and back down the trail to the pickup zone. Just a peaceful walk in the sun. Okay. Okay, would you roll in now? Uh, a 270 from the smoke, uh, pops me. Uh, one zero zero meters away from it, I'll just you from here. Alright, what's wanted? Alright, give me some cover. Devoye, the medic, having survived another rescue mission, brings back his wounded man. Who is it? Who is it? The question spreads down the line. Oh, Christ, it's Hero, the sergeant who likes to walk point. How bad is it? A couple of leg wounds. We were walking down the trail. Get a perimeter out here. I was walking point, and uh, we noticed a side trail. It was one of the side trails we came down that had more use on it than when we first came down it. So uh, I looked up and spotted uh, just a, it was an NVA. He had a green uniform at an AK. And uh, I was like a you know quick draw old thing. I opened up in him. He opened up in me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm afraid it works that way. But uh, 
He's, he's lying up there on the trail. Roger that. We haven't taken fire in here uh, yet. Uh, I got hit in both legs. Pop, pop uh, smoke, 4-3. Pop a smoke over uh, here. I, that's about it. Ed? <laughs> well, I've got seven months in country now. Three Purple Hearts. I don't need a fourth. <laughs> the enemy soldier who shot Jorgensen cannot be found. He may have survived or dragged himself off to die. Most of...
That was the great Jimi Hendrix. Did you guys know he only made, quote, $3,000 his whole musical career? You know how sad that is? Check out John Lennon gets pissed off. It was embarrassing. What kind of a protest did you make? I don't know much about an advertising campaign for peace. Can you understand that? No, I can't. A very big advertising campaign for peace. Well, you think it's? Are you advertising for peace? Oh, do you want nice middle-class gestures for peace and intellectual manifestos written by a lot of half-witted intellectuals, and nobody reads them? That's the trouble with the peace movement. Well, I'm you sorry know, you like the old mop tops, dear, and you thought it was, you know, it was very satirical well, and witty and you liked Hard Day's Night Love, but I've grown up, but you obviously haven't. Have you? Yes, folks. What have you grown up to? No, 29. Talk you were saying that in America they're so serious about the protest movement. Yes, they are. But they were so flippant that they were singing a happy-go-lucky song, which happens to be one I wrote, mm. and I'm glad they sang it. And when I get there, I'll sing it with them when I get in. And that was a message from me to America or to anywhere that I used my songwriting ability to write a song that we could all sing together. And I'm proud that this your lucky song, which happens to be one I wrote, and I'm glad they sang it. And when I get there, I'll sing it with them when I get in. And that was a message from me to America or to anywhere. But in America, they're so serious about the protest movement. Yes, they are. But they were so flippant that they were singing a happy-go-lucky song, which happens to be one I wrote. Mm. And I'm glad they sang it. And when I get there, I'll sing it with them when I get in. And that was a message from me to America or to anywhere that I used my songwriting ability to write a song that we could all sing together. And I'm proud that they sang it at the moratorium. I wouldn't have cared if they'd sang We, Can o- we Shall Overcome. But it just so happens they sang that, and I'm proud of it. And I'll be glad to go there and sing with them. Make it jolly. I will make it jolly. Yes, yes, you know, we have to make it jolly. What's the matter with you, Philip? It's the last fucking verse. The end of the song is just like the fucking rest of it. We're going to sing the harmonies to all young girls. Come on. Okay, stop, son. This guitar is just crippling beyond belief. I can't play it. Just give me some trouble. No short head yellow belt. Come on, I'm doing Eddie Cochran. It doesn't last long. <laughs> cut across, shorty, shorty, cut across. No short head yellow belt. It's on a trick. Come on, you cunts. What do you stop for? Eddie V. What do you stop for? Done a trick. Come on, you cunts. What do you stop for? Done a trick. Come on, you cunts. What do you stop for? What do you stop for? Done a grass. No short head, yellow belly. It's on a trick. Come on, you cunts. What do you stop for? Eddie Veal! <laughs> Get him up. Piss the game. What do you stop for? Sang that fucking melody. So what's, what's going on, tell me. 
they're improvising. Okay, stop improvising. Yeah. I just keep it. Sorry, I sang the fucking melody. So what's what's going on? Tell me. Uh, they're improvising. Okay, stop improvising. Yeah. I just keep it solid. I'm saying, you know, I had a good shit today, and uh, this is what I thought this morning, and uh, you know, and oh, I love you, Yoko. I mean, the British press actually called Yoko ugly in the papers, and I've never seen that about any woman or man, even if it was, if a person is ugly, you don't normally sort of say it in the paper, you know, that ugly woman, and, and she's not ugly, and if she was. You wouldn't be so mean. They, they even say attractive about the most awful-looking people, just to be kind. <laughs> but that's the kind of treatment we were getting at that time, and it really hurt us. By then, we were pretty sick of Pete Best, too, because he was a lousy drummer, you know? He never improved, you know? And uh, there was always this, this, this myth being built up over the years that he was great and Paul was jealous of him because he was pretty and all that crap, you know? Uh, Who do you write your cartoons for? I write my cartoons for money, just as you sing your songs. Exactly the same reason. Yeah, and exactly the same reason much of this is happening, too. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Darkness. Okay. What do you do with to relax? Smoke marijuana. You were joking when you said that, of course. Yeah, right. <laughs> What's this? It's not for real, is it? All right, go. <laughs> We made USAA insurance for veterans like Martin. When a hailstorm hit, he needed his insurance to get it done right, right away. USAA, what you're made of, we're made for. Is that when we got caught uh, that night, uh, Chief, at the Gator Bowl? Yeah. And you guys put me through a window into a, yeah. a paddy wagon right. to take me right. to the hospital? Yeah. You guys see that rocket this morning? Oh yeah! Did it, did the launch chair go off? No, yeah. you could see that. You could see it. So I had, I had bacon, tomato when it disconnected up there. Gigi and him yeah. saw the explosion. I didn't no, know I it. Didn't I had lunch because it just launched right over here. <laughs> I had lunch. I, I, I was buried in a beaver. <laughs> oh! oh. Uh, so what's your name? Bill Jones. Bill Jones. Jones. Okay. Um, you lived here for how long? Twenty-four years. Okay. Where were you born? Right here. Scott County. All right. So this you've owned this place for 24 years. Yes, sir. All right. And what's the what's this artwork? What's this? Oh, I just got kind of creative, and I was going to put it back there for my little deer stand. And I said, well, shoot, I'll just move it up here on the front where everybody can see it. How do you earn a living? Well, right now I'm working on diesel. Most time, most of my work, and I've done my farm work all my life, brush hogging, working cattle. So you're you're an artist too. Well, I just kind of, like I said, I kind of like getting creative around here, you know. Yeah, and I and I look, I see beyond the, this is uh, it says redneck. Yeah. So is that is that a title you're proud of, or is that well, you, yeah, you're just kind of making? Here in the south. So you, so you laid down some. Some roofing material here, yeah, looks that's like. Yeah, floor. That's your floor. And uh, do you take naps out here? Yes, we sleep out here at night when it's cool. 
Doesn't the traffic keep you up? Nah. No. Who's in there? My girlfriend. I uh, like put her on camera. <laughs> she wants to be on camera, sure. Hey, honey, you want to be on camera? You want to be on camera? How many dogs you got? 14. Holy cow. 14 dogs, a donkey, any other, any other animals? Well, that's about it. Just a few wild ones that come yeah, in and out here and there? Cows and panthers. You do? Panthers? Okay. Cougars, bobcats, coons, squirrels, rabbits, possum. Skunks, possums. I'll admit the uh, one of the first things I noticed when I drove by was the Confederate flag. Yeah. Because you know there's all that controversy about it now, as there's been for years. But what's your stance on it? Well, I just like flying. What is it? Everybody off. It's sort of a rebel. That's kind of the association yeah, with it, isn't it? With redneck or rebel, redneck. Colored people don't like it. And I don't know why. They just think it's bad if you fly. Well, I, I ain't flying it to make nobody mad. I ain't flying it to hurt nobody's feelings, you know. I'm just flying it because I like it. Did, was it more prevalent when you were younger? Yeah. It was around more? One. Yeah. I always had one. Your family? Well, yeah, sort of. Daddy, my dad, he wasn't too pleased with it, but... Oh, no, why's that? Huh? Why's that? Well, he fought in war, you know. He believed in the American flag. He believed in... I blew, too, you know, but I just don't fly. Because I don't agree with the economy that we're in right now. Well, what do you think's the solution? I... What do you think would help the country? Or just... What would make you happy? Quit sending all the money overseas and helping them and send it back to the United States to people that really need it here in the United States. Do you think you're in that category? Uh, no, I could do. You know, I, I'm, I'm, we're living off the grid right now. We ain't had no electricity in six weeks, six months. What's this? Well, that's a light pole, but there ain't no electricity here. That's why we're sleeping out here. We're living off the grid. We're living like we're camping. That's the way we live. We cook right here on this. No kidding. Are there a lot of folks around that live like this, or, are you, or is this unique? Just me. Put the wood in there, put the grill on it. What do you make? Hamburgers, hot dogs, corn dogs, pizza. How do you keep your food cold? Ice chest and ice. How do you go into town? How far is that? Eight miles. You walk eight miles to get groceries? Well, somebody give me a ride, but if they don't, yeah, I'll walk you. Oh my. I've always managed to get a ride back, you know. How do you spend your spare time? Mostly fishing and hunting. Okay. Working on the place, maybe? Yeah. What's your girlfriend do? About the same thing. She helps her friend up here in town take care of some dogs. Does she also hunt and fish? Ah, she has, but she's allergic to ticks right now. I got ticks bad. What? How much would you say you two live on a month? <laughs> right now, we're probably living on about $75 a week, a month. You're getting paid a few bucks a day from your guy, yeah. and she's making a few bucks a day from her dog business. Got to buy her dog food and her cigarettes, but right now we're out of cigarettes. 
do you have children in your life? Yeah, I got four kids. Do they have kids? Yeah. So you're married. So your dad or granddad? Yeah. So you can teach your grandkids about hunting and fishing. Yeah. Do you? Do you get that chance? Yeah, when I see them. Okay. Yeah, see, so you are kind of passing that on. Yeah. Well, that's important. I know my dad takes a lot of value in that with his yeah. grandkids. Yeah, they they like dogs. They, they all got dogs of their own. They got animals. Do the grandkids ever come here? Every once in a while. Do they like it here? Yeah. Do you think it's kind of like a playground with all this stuff? Yeah. They, yeah Do you yeah. have to watch them, though, because they might start playing with some of these yeah. sharp things, so yeah. you got to be careful? Yeah, yeah, they always get on to them about touching stuff, you know. <laughs> Against that, my fall. Uh, what about holidays? Are holidays important to you and your family? They're just another day to me. So you don't have a big Christmas tree and get the presents and don't do nothing like that? Are you Christian? Yeah. Huh? Are you Christian? Yeah. Well, it looks like you celebrate Christmas. Look at that. Yeah. I put a rubber flag in his hand on Christmas Day. Is this how you see yourself living the rest of your days? No. What's your uh, outlook? What's your plan? Oh, we're going to get the electric turned back on, you know. We just, sure. We're just short of the way we live without. Is it, a, is it a financial thing? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, um, but do you think you'll stay here through retirement and oh, yeah. old age? Yeah, I'll stay here till I die. Yeah? This is your... This is, this is my mom's old home place, and she gave it to me. Oh, okay. And I ain't selling it, I ain't mortgaging it, I ain't getting rid of none of it. Uh-huh. You know, it's just, it's ours. Need to send money internationally? Download the Western Union app. Available 24-7. The Western Union app helps you send money anytime around the world. Download the app and find out more at westernunion.com. We've been riding with the police yes. a little bit, you know that. They've been telling you about us, right? They told me that you run things around here and that you control the flow of drugs around. No, no, that's that's wrong, man, that's wrong. What's the story with your chain? Is that, are those, are those real diamonds? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, How much for something like that? A couple, couple grand. A couple of grand? Yeah. If those are diamonds, that must be quite a bit more yes, than Yes, it is. How much? Probably 24,000, 24, maybe a bit more. Maybe the gold is higher than How much then? Probably like 25. How do you make your living? Well, look, I, look, real estate, we, we sell cars and everything, you know. Look, this is my daughter right here. You know what I mean? Really? Yes, this is my daughter, she's seven years old. We not doing nothing bad, man. If I asked one of those police what you do, what would he say? That, 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 that I'm a, that, that I, whatever, I don't know, what, they got their own opinion. They say that, they'd say that you're a big time drug dealer. I'm not, man, for real, man. I look, I look, I pay rent. In your opinion, why do they have that view of you? Because they see me every day out here. And... On the streets, on the corner? On the corner, what? but I live right around the corner. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, man, look, we, look, these animals was gonna be butchered. And I think I did a good deed. I think God is seeing this. Joel, what's the story with your watch? Huh? <laughs> 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 that watch? Let me see that. How much for something like that, Joel? Uh, 
I only Bro. paid 200. 200 what? No, I never shot nobody. You know what I mean? I never shot nobody. Did you ever hurt anyone physically? Oh, always, yeah. Never, I, never, yeah, we always beat people up. I'm not going to lie to you. We always fight. Family problems, you know. Sometimes you do what you got to do to survive, man. Did you stomp on that girl's head? No, I did not stomp on that girl's head. She'll tell you herself. I did not touch that girl. That's why I came out, and they locked me up. But I ain't stump on that girl. Hey, they said I did, because everybody say stuff. But the detectives found out that I was telling the truth, and that's why they let me go. They probably say that the witnesses were scared because you, you command a lot of respect out here on the street, and the people would be afraid to testify. No, honestly, nah. Honestly, nah. Because, look... Look, I'm about to leave out of this shithole soon. There's going to be more worse people than me, all right? Once, once we, whatever they say, it's going to be worse people, and, and it's going to be more problems, remember? Yeah, because, look, everything is going good, man. Ain't nobody doing nothing wrong, man. Look, you see somebody doing something wrong? No. You think it's good to have someone who's, who, who controls a bit of the area so that he can keep the peace a little bit? Yes, I think that's, that's, that play a part in, in society. Rather than have smaller little factions. Yeah, because yeah, everybody want to do it. Exactly, because then everybody want to do whatever, anything, anybody want to do. And that's when chaos comes. Somebody got to have control of something. There's been a recent spike in popularity in the past year for documentaries that take on a darker tone, especially with the popular entertainment company Netflix taking such an interest into the topic. And why wouldn't they? With shows like Making a Murder again in 19.3 million viewers in 35 days, outdoing Jessica Jones, the Marvel superhero Netflix original series, which only gathered 8.8 .8 million in the same time span, they'd be stupid not to. And with their latest project, Evil Genius, created by Trey Borzarelli, being held as the best true crime show ever, it doesn't seem like they'll be slowing down anytime soon. But I'm here to talk about a documentary that to me serves as a high point in documentary filmmaking, if not serving as the most harrowing of all time. Titicus Follies is an American documentary named after a talent show hosted inside a mental institute for the criminally insane.
Opening with a performance by the empty-eyed yet seemingly cheerful participants, the intro doesn't set you up for what you're about to experience. The things that you will continue to see throughout this film, you will not forget soon after. The film was even banned in Massachusetts, the place it was shot, as it was ruled that the film violated the patient's privacy and dignity. Despite the fact that Frederick Wiseman, the man who shot the film, had received permission from all of the people who featured in this movie. In 1968, a year after the documentary was released, the Massachusetts Supreme Court stated its concern over the privacy and dignity of the inmates and stated that they wanted all copies of the film to be destroyed. Hey! Huh? What are you doing, Jim? Good morning, Jim. Good morning. How's that room going to be going? Great best of mornings. Huh? What? What'd you say? I stood out and I was clean! Oh, Jim. What? Tonight! What'd you say? Can't hear you, Jim. What are you hiding, Jim? All right, come on. The film was ultimately banned. This decision is infamous, as the banning of the documentary allowed the horrors portrayed in this film to continue till 1987, 20 years after the film was shot. As in 1987, seven families of deceased inmates sued the Institute. Many believe if this documentary was allowed to see the light of day, it would have resulted in the closure of the Institute. As I promised you before, if I see enough improvement in you. But how can I improve if I'm getting worse? I'm trying to tell you, day by day, I am getting worse. Because of the circumstances, because of the situation. Now you tell me, uh, or how can, uh, until you see an improvement, each time I get worse. So obviously it's the treatment that I'm getting, or the uh, situation, or the, or the place, or the, or, the, or the patients, or the inmates. Well, I, don't, I do not know which. It was only in 1991 that the film was made accessible to the public. Today you can find the documentary here on YouTube, with just over 3,000 views. But to think there was a stint of 24 years in which it was seen by no one. In fact, if the state of Massachusetts had had its way, it had been completely destroyed. Who's the worst, most despicable person you can think of? Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, Louis Garavito, Paul Pot? Of course, you can make your own arguments for any of them, or anybody else for that matter. Yet, all of these people have one thing in common. They're human. Preposterous people try to act like monsters, either due to lofty, ridiculous ideals or some primal urge to revolt against society as a whole. It's quite the bizarre phenomenon, yet none of these admittedly sick people have truly fallen into the abyss. Perhaps they've stared down into it, dipped their feet in it, but none of them have taken the plunge as a whole. 
and despite their efforts, they weren't able to separate themselves from their inherent humanity. But that's a good thing, and that's why they were relatively easy to take down. The bad news is that every once in a while, special cases will arise. In our circles, we call these individuals the Void People, or just Voids. Individuals so far gone that they can hardly be considered humans anymore. The cause behind entities like this? Well, I wouldn't know. Nobody really does. Maybe they were born with that latent potential. Maybe they underwent some obscure supernatural transformation. Maybe their experiments gone awry. Aliens from another planet. Shit, maybe they're literal demons from hell. Brought here by some fool who just had to conduct some fucked up ritual. Who the hell knows? The only detail that matters is the fact that they exist. And dealing with them is more than a bitch. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of maximum security prisons. Places where drug kingpins, terrorists, prolific serial killers, etc. are sent. The places meant to contain the worst among humans. Well, those are a joke compared to where the voids are kept. At a pair of undisclosed coordinates, built in the underground of a tiny island somewhere deep in the Atlantic, there exists a prison unlike anything you could imagine. We simply call it the chasm. A penitentiary for pure, unbridled evil. A collective evil that would surely yield humanity's extinction in a couple of months if it were allowed to run rampant in the world. Let me emphasize this a bit further. The individuals that require being held there are not merely criminally insane. They are criminally, absolutely, out of this universe fucking bonkers. Of course, you wouldn't know any of this, would you? The government would probably sacrifice a thousand children before they divulge a single detail about the place to a person without high enough clearance. But you know, that's just how they are. Before I came, there were exactly 32 being confined there, save for two that were still being actively pursued through the Brazilian underground and Russian tundra, respectively. That was about all of them in the world. At least, we assumed that was all of them. Can't really be sure about anything these days. Each holding cell was fortified to hell, specifically designed to counter and contain the respective void they were holding. If they managed to escape, there were eight drones armed with Gatling guns, blades, grenades, and rockets waiting for them within a larger chamber. If they managed to break through that, then twenty guards in mechanized suits would have to step in. However, everybody understood the futility of that protocol. Those guards were getting slaughtered in seconds, regardless of the void that they went up against. Maybe minutes, if they were really skilled. I'm not entirely sure why any of us regular guards are stationed here at all. Bureaucracy, I guess? Who knows what the government's thinking? If the situation were ever to get too drastic, then there was really one feasible countermeasure in place. A last resort, so to speak. The higher-ups would call in something known as Task Force Void Nova Hammer, or TFVNH for short. I've never seen them in action before, nor do I know much about them. Not that I really want to, though. If you ever find yourself witnessing them in person, that must mean you're having a bad, bad day. So, why am I disclosing all of this uber-classified information that would either get me killed or thrown in the deepest hole conceivable for the rest of my short life? Well, I'd estimate that there's about a 90% chance that I'm going to die by the end of today. And even if I do make it out of this fiasco, my life's never really going to be the same. So, fuck it. Here we go. My day started out more or less normal. I was part of the unit guarding somebody named Jim Henninger. Well, that was his real name. It doesn't evoke a lot of fear, does it? And that's why we had to call him something else. 
Standing at five foot seven, 171 centimeters, 135 pounds, or 61 kilograms, we were all required to memorize their physical stats. He doesn't look like much. However, if you ever find yourself in the same room with him, no matter how big and tough you are, you're going to get dissected or something. The main danger surrounding him stems from the fact that he seems to be able to teleport on will. One second you'll be staring at his dark, lifeless eyes, and after one blink, he'll disappear in a cloud of black haze, only to end up breathing right down your neck. For that reason, there's got to be at least ten sets of eyes on his monitor at all times. There's no way around it. If he's not being watched, he will escape. He's also kind of unkillable. No matter how many bullets you put through his head or blades you plunge into his chest, the guy just won't croak. And once he gets a scalpel in his hands, oh boy. Of course, he's just one of the 32. And comparatively speaking, on the tamer side. With that said, my guard shift ended without any incident. Routine stuff. Following that, I went on break in the lunchroom with my buddy Sandhu. Our conversations were usually pretty dry, but at least I can talk to the guy. It's hard to get along with any of the other guards. They're all just weird in one way or another. Anyway, lunch was usually the most enjoyable part of a working day in the chasm. What I didn't enjoy was the blaring fucking alarm and the deafening, repeating automatic voice blasting the word breach that went off as I was about to take my chili out of the microwave. I could see Sandu's face drop at the disturbance. Are you fucking kidding me? He mouthed. Now, I'd only ever experienced one minor breach up until that point, and it was from the surgeon. I guess none of us were paying any attention that day. He made it about eight miles off the coast using a stolen boat, racking up a total body count of 145 in his wake. It took three full days to wrangle him back, and four more weeks to fix all the damage that he'd done to the infrastructure. That was all just one prisoner. If we were dealing with three or more, then our combined efforts as guards wouldn't have stood a semblance of a chance. There had only ever been one major breach in the chasm's history, in which eight voids had broken out nearly simultaneously. It was also apparently the only time that TFV and H had to step in. This was all around 12 years ago, long before I became a guard myself. The aftermath of that? I don't have enough clearance to know but I'm willing to bet that it was nothing fun. We did have a breach procedure. It was a lengthy document outlining exactly what we were supposed to do and where we were supposed to go. I've read it before and it's fucking garbage. It's essentially predicated on the idea that we're cannon fodder and that we're obligated to do whatever we can to contain the prisoners. If anybody actually followed the procedure, they'd die instantly. Well, what the hell are we supposed to do? Somebody asked. They only got shrugs in response. Except for Sonson, that is. I fucking hated Sonson. The guy seemed to believe that his life's an action movie and that he's the invincible main protagonist. Are y'all fucking pussies? He screamed at the top of his lungs with a stupid grin plastered across his face. We never get any fucking action. Let's fucking go! Before anybody could stop him, he picked up his rifle, swung the door open like the giant fucking dumbass he is. Since the alarm was blaring, we could barely hear anything that was going on outside the corridors. For that reason, we were all rather shocked upon seeing Morgi the Corgi standing right outside. Imagine some guy walking around wearing a dirty, giant, creepy dog costume. Now imagine that guy is seven foot two, with a voice that's simultaneously deep, raspy, and childish. That's Morgi the Corgi for you. I could see the bravado leaving Sonson's face the moment he laid eyes on the abomination in person. We'd only ever seen him through a screen before. 
I always hated it when people tried imitating dogs, but hearing it coming from Morgie was a bit different and a lot worse. Before Sansen could even put his finger on the trigger, his head was mashed into pulp. Morgie began pouncing on other guards, effortlessly crushing limbs with his oversized paws. He'd switched between running around on his feet and crawling on all fours. The last thing I saw before running out of the break room was Morgie forcing the remaining horrified agents to play fetch with him using a stray arm. But of course, it's not like I managed to escape anywhere better. The entire place was in a fucking tizzy. The squad leaders were frenetic, attempting to scrap together some kind of suppression force. I couldn't understand why they were so delusional. Are we guards supposed to be badass? Fuck yeah! Due to our field prowess, we are specifically selected from the existing pool of CIA agents and military personnel to be dropped into this godforsaken place. Put us against a trafficking militia, terrorists, etc. We'll smoke them. But what we can't deal with are things that aren't supposed to exist in the first place. We watch creature features and slasher fix with the inherent understanding that we are watching fiction, a type of visual catharsis for our inherent fascination with the dark and grim. It's not supposed to be real, and we have no idea how to act once we find it standing right in front of our faces, not even us so-called elite agents. Like I said, I'm not sure why they even bothered keeping guards in the chasm to begin with. These were the thoughts that ran through my head as I bolted through the hellish corridors. At one point, I stumbled upon a crowd of guards leering over some rails. Shockingly, they didn't seem concerned in the slightest. What the hell are you guys looking at? I asked them. A guard I recognized as Fenton turned around. Oh, this is going to be sick. He grinned, gesturing for me to look below. I didn't even know where I was going, so I didn't realize that I'd wandered into a level right above the weight room. It was a sprawling gym with an abundance of the best equipment attainable, but there was one guard that used it the most, Branko Petrovic, a Serbian-American whose oversized frame hardly makes any fucking sense. I swear, when I first met this guy, he couldn't have been over seven feet. He's around 8'2", or 249 centimeters now. I'm not quite sure what kind of bizarre experiment they ran on him, but they sure as hell overdid it. He was in the middle of overhead pressing what appeared to be an ungodly amount of weight when one of the escaped voids wandered into the weight room floor. It was Luz, standing at a 6'2", 188 centimeters, 205 pounds, 93, being utterly obliterated by the voids. I could see the surgeon giving somebody a forced lobotomy, grinning like hell while doing so. At the same time, Morgie was chewing on a severed head like a toy. But then I caught something interesting on the screen below. It was Wirehead and Luz staring each other down. That's when a rather obvious revelation hit me. Of course the voids weren't only going to kill the guards, they were sure as hell going after each other as well. That much should have been apparent from the beginning. I grinned, feeling some kind of obscure hope creeping into my system. That hope was only bolstered when I saw the Nazi utterly dousing Diaxek with a relentless wave of black flames, with the latter struggling to move forward as a result. I guess these bastards can be hurt after all, I thought to myself. But of course, my hopes were merely transitory. I wasn't going to kid myself, even if only one void was left standing at the end of everything. That just meant it'll be the strongest one of them all. And we can't stay in here forever. At this point, my future is uncertain at best. Maybe I'll get lucky, maybe not. But in the meantime, I suppose I'll just enjoy the show. See how things turn out. This place gives you the creeps, doesn't it? I couldn't disagree with Sandu's assessment of the bizarre room we found ourselves in. 
The monitors only illuminated the area up until a certain point. However, we couldn't see any walls, which meant that the place had to be bigger than what could be seen, either by a little or a lot. We couldn't know unless we decided to venture further into the darkness. Neither of us took that initiative, though, keeping it a mystery. Still, it didn't feel like anybody was in there with us, so we allowed ourselves to relax a bit. I took the first sitting shift, lying back in the chair and focusing on the monitor that I deemed most interesting at the moment. Wirehead vs. Luz. Who was I rooting for? <laughs> None of them. Nevertheless, I was morbidly eager to see these two horrific titans square off. Amongst us guards, we'd created an unofficial tier system, ranking each respective void in terms of estimated threat in comparison to each other. The tiers went as such. Tornado, weakest. Tsunami, hurricane, mid. Earthquake, asteroid, highest. Imminent death, get fucked up. They were also divided into subdivisions, high, low, mid, etc. With that said, Luz was around a high tornado, while Wirehead was a mid-tsunami. A glaring difference between them, but not enough that would make it impossible for Luz to win. Wanna make a bet? I asked Sandu, half-joking. He chuckled. You know my luck's cursed, but I guess if we don't make it out of here alive, then my debt's null anyway. Luz was more of a defensive combatant, so it wasn't surprising when Wirehead initiated the conflict. He twirled his bat around, still with remnants of guard flesh clinging on it, in a near mocking fashion at Luz. He was a delinquent after all. Luz hardly reacted, of course. That's just the way he was. In response, he stepped forward, electricity flickering through his hands and up to his forearms. Wirehead followed suit, unleashing a big swing at Luz's head, which he managed to intercept with one of his forearms. Nevertheless, the wire still pierced his skin. Wirehead followed it up with a headbutt. This time, it connected with the flesh of Luz's face, slicing him up rather gruesomely. But despite his seemingly grievous injuries, he remained unwavering. That was the thing about Luz. He was incapable of feeling any pain. Like I said, his exact origins remained a mystery, but the one thing that we knew about him for sure was the fact that he hailed from some kind of ancient clan residing in the Arctic Circle. In fact, he was the sole survivor of an incident that decimated his village, and he was hungry for revenge against the unknown force that did it. After taking the headbutt, Luz was now in striking range. He formed his fingers into an arrow shape and drove them into Wirehead's solar plexus before electrocuting his insides. Wirehead quaked in pain as he swung his bat in a frenzied rage, just about demolishing Luz's ribcage. No reaction from him, though. Instead, he took his other hand and wrapped it around Wirehead's neck. Any normal person would have succumbed to Luz's electrical shocks after a few seconds, but, of course, Wirehead was no normal person. Despite blood pouring out of his chest wound and the skin of his neck beginning to bubble, he picked up Luz by the throat and slammed him over the steel railing. He fucking broke his back. Even without a sound, the mental audio of the spine snapping reverberated throughout my mind. Unsurprisingly, Luz didn't bat an eye. Wirehead went in for the kill, tossing Luz's body onto the ground before smashing it until it resembled nothing more than a mess of bloody pulp and broken bones. But somehow, he was still alive. Among the gruesome pile, I could see an eye blink. Once Wirehead had exhausted himself from his relentless swinging, Luz took his chance. Using his one arm that hadn't been smashed to bits, he crawled over and grabbed Wirehead by the foot before scaling him up to his neck. Once there, he drilled his fist into Wirehead's forehead utterly shredding his hand in the process. In the end, it was worth the sacrifice. He was able to electrocute Wirehead's brain, finally causing the behemoth to drop. So, I guess he won? Sandu said. I guess. 
I had my own reservations about calling Luz's performance a victory. By the end of it, all of his limbs and his spine had been shattered, and not an inch of his body wasn't hosting a series of deep cuts. The good side of his face had also been chipped away to the skull, leaving only his eye and half of his nose intact. And yet, he didn't move with a hint of desperation or concern. Calmly hey, what's up, guys? Hope you're doing good out there, out there, out there in the sandbox. You guys will be getting home in no time. Don't even trip. You guys, you guys got this. Do your thing, get your groove on. Do the, do the, do the rock and roll, rock and roll American dance. Hard to step, the, the two step boogie. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Yeehaw, yeehaw, you are the brain. But we were, uh, we had this one thing going on yesterday or earlier. So, or yeah, earlier. So I'm going to go ahead and put the continuation of that portion on right now vietnam war 1970 cbs camera rolls as platoon comes under fire this is the part where it's like deep in the shit like they're shooting at each other and shit all crazy like all crazy deep in the jungle getting slapped by rice patty Then a quick lunch and back down the trail to the pickup zone. Just a peaceful walk in the sun. Okay. Okay, would you roll in now? Uh, a 270 from the smoke, uh, approximately. Uh, one zero zero meters away from it. I'll adjust you from there. All right, what's one then? All right, give me some cover. And Devaye, the medic, having survived another rescue mission, brings back the wounded man. Who is it? Who is it? The question spreads down the line. Oh, Christ, it's Hero, the sergeant who likes to walk point. How bad is it? A couple of leg wounds. We were walking down the trail. Yeah, perimeter out here. I was walking point, and uh, we noticed a side trail. It was one of the side trails we came down that had more use on it than when we first came down it. So uh, I looked up and spotted, uh, just a, it was an NVA, had a green uniform, had an AK. And uh, I was like a you know quick draw old thing. I opened up in him. He opened up in me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm afraid it works that way. But uh, he's he's lying up there on the trail. We have taken fire. I got hit in both legs. Pop, uh, pop smoke, four three. Pop smoke over uh, here. That's about it. Ed. <laughs> well, we've got seven months in country now. Three purple hearts. I don't need a fourth. <laughs> 
The enemy soldier who shot Jorgensen cannot be found. He may have survived or dragged himself off to die. Most of...
That was the great Jimi Hendrix. Did you guys know he only made, quote, $3,000 his whole musical career? You know how sad that is? Check out John Lennon gets pissed off. It was embarrassing. What kind of a protest was, did you make? You I'm, said, I don't know much about Nigeria. an advertising campaign for peace. Very Can you understand time. that? No, I can't. A very big advertising campaign for peace. I think it's for peace. And well, you think Are it's, you advertising oh, do you want, Lennon or peace? Do you peace? want nice middle-class gestures for peace Maybe. and intellectual manifestos written by a lot of half-witted intellectuals and nobody reads them? Oh. That's the trouble with the peace movement. Well, well, I'm you sorry know, you liked the old mop tops, dear, and you thought it was, you know, it was very satirical well, and witty and you liked Hard Day's Night Love, but I've grown up, but you obviously haven't. Have you? Yes, folks. What have you grown up to? No, 29. Talk. You were saying that in America they're so serious about the protest movement. Yes, they are. But they were so flippant that they were singing a happy-go-lucky song, which happens to be one I wrote, mm. and I'm glad they sang it. And when I get there, I'll sing it with them when I get in. And that was a message from me to America or to anywhere that I used my songwriting ability to write a song that we could all sing together. And I'm proud that this your lucky song, which happens to be one I wrote, and I'm glad they sang it. And when I get there, I'll sing it with them when I get in. And that was a message from me to America or to anywhere that in America they're so serious about the protest movement. Yes, they are. But they were so flippant that they were singing a happy-go-lucky song, which happens to be one I wrote. Mm. And I'm glad they sang it. And when I get there, I'll sing it with them. When I get in. And that was a message from me to America or to anywhere that I used my songwriting ability to write a song that we could all sing together. And I'm proud that they sang it at the moratorium. I wouldn't have cared if they'd sang We, can o we Shall Overcome but it just so happens they sang that, and I'm proud of it. And I'll be glad to go there and sing with them. Make it jolly. I will make it jolly. Yes, yes, you know, we have to make it jolly. Okay. What's the matter with you, Philip? It's the last fucking verse. Loud. The end of the song is just like the fucking rest of it. We're going to sing the harmonies to all young folks. Come on. Okay, stop, stop. This guitar is just crippling beyond belief. I can't play it. Just give me some truth. No short head, yellow belt. Come on, I'm doing Eddie Cochran. It doesn't last long. <laughs> cut across, shorty. Shorty, cut across. No short head, yellow belt. It's on a trick. Come on, you cunts. What do you stop for? Eddie V. What do you stop for? Done a trick! Come on, you cunts. What do you stop for? Done a trick! Come on, you cunts. What do you stop for? What do you stop for? Done a grass. No short head, yellow belly, it's on a trick! Come on, you cunts. What do you stop for? Eddie Veal! <laughs> Get him up. Piss the game. What do you stop for? Sang that fucking melody. So what's, what's going on, tell me. 
they're improvising. Okay, stop improvising. Yeah. Mm. I just keep it. Sorry, I sang the fucking melody. So what's what's going on? Tell me. Uh, they're improvising. Okay, stop improvising. Yeah. I just keep it solid. I'm saying, you know, I had a good shit today, and uh, this is what I thought this morning, and uh, you know, and oh, I love you, Yoko. I mean, the British press actually called Yoko ugly in the papers, and I've never seen that about any woman or man, even if it was, if a person is ugly, you don't normally sort of say it in the paper, you know, that ugly woman, and, and she's not ugly, and if she was, you wouldn't be so mean. They, they even say attractive about the most awful-looking people, just to be kind. <laughs> but that's the kind of treatment we were getting at that time, and it really hurt us. By then, we were pretty sick of Pete Best, too, because he was a lousy drummer, you know? He never improved, you know? And uh, there was always this, this, this myth being built up over the years that he was great and Paul was jealous of him because he was pretty and all that crap, you know? Uh, Who do you write your cartoons for, Paul? I write my cartoons for money, just as you sing your songs. Exactly the same reason. Yeah, and exactly the same reason much of this is happening, too. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Darkness. Okay. What do you do with to relax? Smoke marijuana. You were joking when you said that, of course. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> What's this? It's not for real, is it? <laughs> All right, go. We made USAA insurance for veterans like Martin. When a hailstorm hit, he needed his insurance to get it done right, right away. USAA, what you're made of, we're made for. Is that when we got caught uh, that night, uh, Chief, at the Gator Bowl? Yeah. And you guys put me through a window into a, yeah. a paddy wagon right. and took me right. to the hospital? Yeah. You guys see that rocket this morning? Oh yeah! Did it, did the launch chair go off? No, yeah. you could see that. You could see it. I had, I had in the sky when it disconnected up there. Gigi and him yeah. saw the explosion. I didn't know I, it. I had lunch because it just launched right over here. I had lunch. I, I, I was buried in a beaver. <laughs> oh! oh. Uh, so what's your name? Bill Jones. Bill Jones. Jones. Okay. Um, you lived here for how long? Twenty-four years. Oh, okay. Where were you born? Right here. Scott County. All right. So this you've owned this place for 24 years. Yes, sir. All right. And what's the what's this artwork? What's this? Oh, I just got kind of creative, and I was going to put it back there for my little deer stand. And I said, well, shoot, I'll just move it up here on the front where everybody can see it. How do you earn a living? Well, right now I'm working on diesel. Most time, most of my work, and I've done my farm work all my life, brush hogging, working cattle. So you're you're an artist too. Well, I just kind of, like I said, I kind of like getting creative around here, you know. Yeah, and I and I look, I see beyond the, this is uh, it says redneck. Yeah. So is that is that a title you're proud of, or is that well, you, you know, just kind of making? Here in the south. So you, so you laid down some. Some roofing material here, yeah, looks that's like. Yeah, floor. That's your floor. And uh, do you take naps out here? Yes, we sleep out here at night when it's cool. The 
Doesn't the traffic keep you up? Nah. No. Good. Who's in there? My girlfriend. Oh. I like to put her on camera. <laughs> she wants to be on camera, sure. Hey, honey, you want to be on camera? You want to be on camera? How many dogs you got? Fourteen. Holy cow. Fourteen dogs, a donkey, any other, any other animals? About it. Just a few wild ones that come yeah, in and out here and there. Cows and panthers. Panthers. Cougars, bobcats, coons, squirrels, rabbits, possums. Possums. I'll admit the uh, one of the first things I noticed when I drove by was the Confederate flag. Yeah. Because you know there's all that controversy about it now, as there's been for years. But what's your stance on it? Well, I just like flying. What is it? Everybody off. It's sort of a rebel. That's kind of the association yeah, with it, isn't it? With redneck or rebel, redneck. <laughs> Colored people don't like it, and I don't know why. Does, they just think it's bad if you fly. Well, I, I ain't flying it to make nobody mad. I ain't flying it to hurt nobody's feelings. You know, I'm just flying because I like it. Did, was it more prevalent when you were younger? Yeah. It was I around more. One. Yeah. I always had one. Your family? Well. Yeah, sort of. Daddy, my dad, he wasn't too pleased with it. But oh, no, why's that? Huh? Why's that? Well, he fought in war, you know. He believed in Blairton flag. He believed I in it? I believe, too, you know, but I just don't fly. Because I don't agree with the economy that we're in right now. Well, what do you think's the solution? I. What do you think would help the country? Or just what would make you happy? We're sending all the money overseas and helping them and sending it back to the United States to people that really need it here in the United States. Do you think you're in that category? Uh, no, I could do. You know, I, I'm, I'm, we're living off the grip right now. We ain't had no electricity in six weeks, six months. What's this? Well, that's a light pole, but there ain't no electricity here. That's why we're sleeping out here. We're living off the grid. We're living like we're camping. That's the way we live. We cook right here on this. No kidding. Are there a lot of folks around that live like this, or, are you, or is this unique? Just me. Put the wood in there, put the grill on it. What do you make? Hamburgers, hot dogs, corn dogs, pizza. How do you keep your food cold? Ice chest and ice. How do you go into town? How far is that? Eight miles. You walk eight miles to get groceries? Well, somebody give me a ride, but if they don't, yeah, I'll walk it. Oh my. I've always managed to get a ride back, you know. How do you spend your spare time? Mostly fishing or hunting. Okay. Working on the place, maybe? Yeah. What's your girlfriend do? About the same thing. She helps her friend up here town take care of some dogs. Does she also hunt and fish? Ah, she has, but she's allergic to ticks right now. I got ticks bad. What? How much would you say you two live on a month? <laughs> right now, we're probably living on about seventy-five dollars a week, a month. You're getting paid a few bucks a day from your guy, and she's making a few bucks a day from her dog business. Got to buy her dog food and her cigarettes, but right now we're out of cigarettes. 
do you have children in your life? Yeah, I got four kids. Do they have kids? Yeah. So you're all married. So you're a uh, granddad. Yeah. So you can teach your grandkids about hunting and fishing. Yeah. Do you? Do you get that chance? Yeah, when I see them. Okay. Yeah, so, you, so you are kind of passing that on. Yeah. Well, that's important. I know my dad takes a lot of value in that with his yeah. grandkids. Yeah, they they like dogs. They, they've all got dogs of their own. They got animals. You know. Do the grandkids ever come here? Every once in a while. Do they like it here? Yeah. Do you think it's kind of like a playground with all this stuff? Yeah. They, yeah Do you yeah. have to watch them though? Because they might start playing with some of these yeah. sharp things. So you yeah. got to be careful. Yeah, yeah. They always get on to them about touching stuff, you know. <laughs> Against that, my fault. Uh, what about holidays? Are holidays important to you and your family? They're just another day to me. So you don't have a big Christmas tree and get the presents and don't do nothing like that? Are you Christian? Yeah. Huh? Are you Christian? Yeah. Well, it looks like you celebrate Christmas. Look at that. Yeah. I put a rubber flag in his hand on Christmas Day. Is this how you see yourself living the rest of your days? No. What's your uh, outlook? What's your plan? Oh, we're going to get the electric turned back on, you know. We just, sure. We're just short of believe and live without. Is it, a, is it a financial thing? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, um, but do you think you'll stay here through retirement and oh, yeah. old age? Yeah, I'll stay here till I die. Yeah? This is your... This is, this is my mom's old home place, and she gave it to me. Oh, okay. And I ain't selling it, I ain't mortgaging it, I ain't getting rid of none of it. Uh-huh. You know, it's just, it's ours. Need to send money internationally? Download the Western Union app. Available 24-7. The Western Union app helps you send money anytime around the world. Download the app and find out more at westernunion.com. We've been riding with the police yes. a little bit, you know that. They've been telling you about us, right? They told me that you run things around here and that you control the flow of drugs around. No, no, that's that's wrong, man, that's wrong. What's the story with your chain? Is that, are those, are those real diamonds? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, are they? How much for something like that? A couple, couple grand. A couple of grand? Yeah. If those are diamonds, that must be quite a bit more yes, than Yes, it is. How much? Probably like 24. 24,000? Maybe a bit more? Maybe a, a gold is higher than How much then? Probably like 25. How do you make your living? Well, look, I, look. Real estate, we, we sell cars and everything, you know. Look, this is my daughter right here. You know what I mean? Really? Yes, this is my daughter. She's seven years old. We're not doing nothing bad, man. If I asked one of those police what you do, what would he say? That, 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 that I'm a, that, that I, whatever, I don't know, what the, they got their own opinion. They say that, they'd say that you're a big time drug dealer. I'm not, man, for real, man. I look, I look, I pay rent. In your opinion, why do they have that view of you? Because they see me every day out here. And... On the streets, on the corner? On the corner, what? but I live right around the corner. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, man, look, we, look, these animals was gonna be butchered. And I think I did a good deed. I think God is seeing this. Joel, what's the story with your watch? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that watch? Let me see that. How much for something like that, Joel? Uh, 
I only paid two hundred. Two hundred what? Two hundred I did not touch that girl. That's why I came out and they locked me up. But I ain't stump on that girl. Hey, they said I did because everybody say stuff. But the detectives found out that I was telling the truth. And that's why they let me go. They probably say that the witnesses were scared because you, you command a lot of respect out here on the street and the people would be afraid to testify. No, honestly, nah. Honestly, nah. Because, look. Look, I'm about to leave out of this shithole soon. There's gonna be more worse people than me, all right? Once, once we, whatever they say, it's gonna be worse people, and, and it's gonna be more problems. Remember? Out here. Yeah, cause look, everything is going good, man. Ain't nobody doing nothing wrong, man. Look, you see somebody doing something wrong? No. You think it's good to have someone who's, who, who controls a bit of the area so that he can keep the peace a little? Yes, I think that's, that's, that play a part in, in Rather society. Rather than have smaller little factions yeah, because yeah, everybody want to do it. Exactly, because then everybody want to do whatever, anything, anybody want to do. And that's when chaos comes. Somebody got to have control of something. There's been a recent spike in popularity in the past year for documentaries that take on a darker tone, especially with the popular entertainment company Netflix taking such an interest into the topic. And why wouldn't they? With shows like Making a Murderer gaining 19.3 million viewers in 35 days, outdoing Jessica Jones, the Marvel superhero Netflix original series, which only gathered 8.8 .8 million in the same time span, they'd be stupid not to. And with their latest project, Evil Genius, created by Trey Borzarelli, being hailed as the best true crime show ever, it doesn't seem like they'll be slowing down anytime soon. But I'm here to talk about a documentary that to me serves as a high point in documentary filmmaking, if not serving as the most harrowing of all time. Titicus Follies is an American documentary named after a talent show hosted inside a mental institute for the criminally insane.
Opening with a performance by the empty-eyed yet seemingly cheerful participants, the intro doesn't set you up for what you're about to experience. The things that you will continue to see throughout this film, you will not forget soon after. The film was even banned in Massachusetts, the place it was shot, as it was ruled that the film violated the patient's privacy and dignity. Despite the fact that Frederick Wiseman, the man who shot the film, had received permission from all of the people who featured in his movie. In 1968, a year after the documentary was released, the Massachusetts Supreme Court stated its concern over the privacy and dignity of the inmates and stated that they wanted all copies of the film to be destroyed. Hey! Huh? What are you doing, Jim? film was ultimately banned. This decision is infamous, as the banning of the documentary allowed the horrors portrayed in this film to continue till 1987, 20 years after the film was shot. As in 1987, seven families of deceased inmates sued the Institute. Many believe if this documentary was allowed to see the light of day, it would have resulted in the closure of the Institute. As I promised you before, if I see enough improvement in you. But how can I improve if I'm getting worse? I'm trying to tell you, day by day, I am getting worse because of the circumstances, because of the situation. Now you tell me, uh, how can, uh, until you see an improvement, each time I get worse. So obviously it's the treatment that I'm getting or the uh, situation or the, or the place or the, or, the, uh, or the patients or the inmates. Well, I, don't, I do not know which. It was only in 1991 that the film was made accessible to the public. Today you can find the documentary here on YouTube with just over 3,000 views. But to think there was a stint of 24 years in which it was seen by no one. In fact, if the state of Massachusetts had had its way, it had been completely destroyed. Who's the worst, most despicable person you can think of? Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, Louis Garavito, Paul Pot? Of course, you can make your own arguments for any of them, or anybody else for that matter. Yet, all of these people have one thing in common. They're human. Preposterous people try to act like monsters, either due to lofty, ridiculous ideals or some primal urge to revolt against society as a whole. It's quite the bizarre phenomenon, yet none of these admittedly sick people have truly fallen into the abyss. Perhaps they've stared down into it, dipped their feet in it, but none of them have taken the plunge as a whole. 
and despite their efforts, they weren't able to separate themselves from their inherent humanity. But that's a good thing, and that's why they were relatively easy to take down. The bad news is that every once in a while, special cases will arise. In our circles, we call these individuals the Void People, or just Voids. Individuals so far gone that they can hardly be considered humans anymore. The cause behind entities like this? Well, I wouldn't know. Nobody really does. Maybe they were born with that latent potential. Maybe they underwent some obscure supernatural transformation. Maybe their experiments gone awry. Aliens from another planet. Shit, maybe they're literal demons from hell. Brought here by some fool who just had to conduct some fucked up ritual. Who the hell knows? The only detail that matters is the fact that they exist. And dealing with them is more than a bitch. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of maximum security prisons. Places where drug kingpins, terrorists, prolific serial killers, etc. are sent. The place is meant to contain the worst among humans. Well, those are a joke compared to where the voids are kept. At a pair of undisclosed coordinates, built in the underground of a tiny island somewhere deep in the Atlantic, there exists a prison unlike anything you could imagine. We simply call it the chasm. A penitentiary for pure, unbridled evil. A collective evil that would surely yield humanity's extinction in a couple of months if it were allowed to run rampant in the world. Let me emphasize this a bit further. The individuals that require being held there are not merely criminally insane. They are criminally, absolutely, out of this universe fucking bonkers. Of course, you wouldn't know any of this, would you? The government would probably sacrifice a thousand children before they divulge a single detail about the place to a person without high enough clearance. But you know, that's just how they are. Before I came, there were exactly 32 being confined there, save for two that were still being actively pursued through the Brazilian underground and Russian tundra, respectively. That was about all of them in the world. At least, we assumed that was all of them. Can't really be sure about anything these days. Each holding cell was fortified to hell, specifically designed to counter and contain the respective void they were holding. If they managed to escape, there were eight drones armed with Gatling guns, blades, grenades, and rockets waiting for them within a larger chamber. If they managed to break through that, then twenty guards in mechanized suits would have to step in. However, everybody understood the futility of that protocol. Those guards were getting slaughtered in seconds, regardless of the void that they went up against. Maybe minutes if they were really skilled. I'm not entirely sure why any of us regular guards are stationed here at all. Bureaucracy, I guess? Who knows what the government's thinking? If the situation were ever to get too drastic, then there was really one feasible countermeasure in place. A last resort, so to speak. The higher-ups would call in something known as Task Force Void Nova Hammer, or TFVNH for short. I've never seen them in action before, nor do I know much about them. Not that I really want to, though. If you ever find yourself witnessing them in person, that must mean you're having a bad, bad day. So, why am I disclosing all of this uber-classified information that would either get me killed or thrown in the deepest hole conceivable for the rest of my short life? Well, I'd estimate that there's about a 90% chance that I'm going to die by the end of today. And even if I do make it out of this fiasco, my life's never really going to be the same. So, fuck it. Here we go. My day started out more or less normal. I was part of a unit guarding somebody named Jim Henninger. Well, that was his real name. It doesn't evoke a lot of fear, does it? And that's why we had to call him something else. 
Standing at five foot seven, 171 centimeters, 135 pounds, or 61 kilograms, we were all required to memorize their physical stats. He doesn't look like much. However, if you ever find yourself in the same room with him, no matter how big and tough you are, you're going to get dissected or something. The main danger surrounding him stems from the fact that he seems to be able to teleport on will. One second you'll be staring at his dark, lifeless eyes, and after one blink, he'll disappear in a cloud of black haze, only to end up breathing right down your neck. For that reason, there's got to be at least ten sets of eyes on his monitor at all times. There's no way around it. If he's not being watched, he will escape. He's also kind of unkillable. No matter how many bullets you put through his head or blades you plunge into his chest, the guy just won't croak. And once he gets a scalpel in his hands, oh boy. Of course, he's just one of the 32. And comparatively speaking, on the tamer side. With that said, my guard shift ended without any incident. Routine stuff. Following that, I went on break in the lunchroom with my buddy Sandhu. Our conversations were usually pretty dry, but at least I can talk to the guy. It's hard to get along with any of the other guards. They're all just weird in one way or another. Anyway, lunch was usually the most enjoyable part of a working day in the chasm. What I didn't enjoy was the blaring fucking alarm and the deafening, repeating automatic voice blasting the word breach that went off as I was about to take my chili out of the microwave. I could see Sandu's face drop at the disturbance. Are you fucking kidding me? He mouthed. Now, I'd only ever experienced one minor breach up until that point, and it was from the surgeon. I guess none of us were paying any attention that day. He made it about eight miles off the coast using a stolen boat, racking up a total body count of 145 in his wake. It took three full days to wrangle him back, and four more weeks to fix all the damage that he'd done to the infrastructure. That was all just one prisoner. If we were dealing with three or more, then our combined efforts as guards wouldn't have stood a semblance of a chance. There had only ever been one major breach in the chasm's history, in which eight voids had broken out nearly simultaneously. It was also apparently the only time that TFV and H had to step in. This was all around 12 years ago, long before I became a guard myself. The aftermath of that? I don't have enough clearance to know, but I'm willing to bet that it was nothing fun. We did have a breach procedure. It was a lengthy document, outlining exactly what we were supposed to do and where we were supposed to go. I've read it before, and it's fucking garbage. It's essentially predicated on the idea that we're cannon fodder, and that we're obligated to do whatever we can to contain the prisoners. If anybody actually followed the procedure, they'd die instantly. Well, what the hell are we supposed to do? Somebody asked. They only got shrugs in response, except for Sonson, that is. I fucking hated Sonson. The guy seemed to believe that his life's an action movie, and that he's the invincible main protagonist. Are y'all fucking pussies? He screamed at the top of his lungs with a stupid grin plastered across his face. We never get any fucking action. Let's fucking go! Before anybody could stop him, he picked up his rifle, swung the door open like the giant fucking dumbass he is. Since the alarm was blaring, we could barely hear anything that was going on outside the corridors. For that reason, we were all rather shocked upon seeing Morgi the Corgi standing right outside. Imagine some guy walking around wearing a dirty, giant, creepy dog costume. Now imagine that guy is seven foot two, with a voice that's simultaneously deep, raspy, and childish. That's Morgi the Corgi for you. I could see the bravado leaving Sonson's face the moment he laid eyes on the abomination in person. We'd only ever seen him through a screen before. 
I always hated it when people tried imitating dogs, but hearing it coming from Morgie was a bit different and a lot worse. Before Sonson could even put his finger on the trigger, his head was mashed into pulp. Morgie began pouncing on other guards, effortlessly crushing limbs with his oversized paws. He'd switched between running around on his feet and crawling on all fours. The last thing I saw before running out of the break room was Morgie forcing the remaining horrified agents to play fetch with him using a stray arm. But of course, it's not like I managed to escape anywhere better. The entire place was in a fucking tizzy. The squad leaders were frenetic, attempting to scrap together some kind of suppression force. I couldn't understand why they were so delusional. Are we guards supposed to be badass? Fuck yeah! Due to our field prowess, we are specifically selected from the existing pool of CIA agents and military personnel to be dropped into this godforsaken place. Put us against a trafficking militia, terrorists, etc. We'll smoke them. But what we can't deal with are things that aren't supposed to exist in the first place. We watch creature features and slasher fix with the inherent understanding that we are watching fiction, a type of visual catharsis for our inherent fascination with the dark and grim. It's not supposed to be real, and we have no idea how to act once we find it standing right in front of our faces, not even us so-called elite agents. Like I said, I'm not sure why they even bothered keeping guards in the chasm to begin with. These were the thoughts that ran through my head as I bolted through the hellish corridors. At one point, I stumbled upon a crowd of guards leering over some rails. Shockingly, they didn't seem concerned in the slightest. What the hell are you guys looking at? I asked them. A guard I recognized as Fenton turned around. Oh, this is going to be sick. He grinned, gesturing for me to look below. I didn't even know where I was going, so I didn't realize that I'd wandered into a level right above the weight room. It was a sprawling gym with an abundance of the best equipment attainable, but there was one guard that used it the most, Bronco Petrovic, a Serbian-American whose oversized frame hardly makes any fucking sense. I swear, when I first met this guy, he couldn't have been over seven feet. He's around 8'2", or 249 centimeters now. I'm not quite sure what kind of bizarre experiment they ran on him, but they sure as hell overdid it. He was in the middle of overhead pressing what appeared to be an ungodly amount of weight when one of the escaped voids wandered into the weight room floor. It was Luz, standing at a 6'2", 188 centimeters, 205 pounds, 93 kilograms. Like all the other prisoners, the guy was a complete mystery. His mostly bare body was comparable of that of a bodybuilder's, save for the hundreds of gnarly scars decorating his skin. The more disconcerting part of his aesthetic was the fact that he only had one half of his face. The other consisted of his exposed skull, with some kind of red electrical current running through his cranial bones. He had the same current running through his hands, which allowed him to savagely electrocute whatever organic material he touched, quickly rendering it into a pile of steaming black mush. I guess that my fellow agents didn't bother reading up on the prisoners they guarded because Bronco never stood a chance. It didn't matter if you were superior to lose in terms of strength. One touch and you were gone. The only practical way of taking him down was by using ranged weapons, and even then, that task was easier said than done. Bronco grunted like the dumb meathead he is before grabbing an Olympic weightlifting plate and chucking it like a frisbee at Luz. It connected, seemingly battering his ribs, but it wasn't nearly enough to take him down. As soon as he rushed forward, the fight had been decided. Bronco attempted to tackle him, a mistake so horrible that his whole body began twitching as his skin made contact with Luz's fingertips. The electricity spread through his giant frame, causing his vitals to shut down within seconds. In no time at all, he was reduced to a heaping mass of scorched flesh on the floor. He didn't even have time to scream. 
I could see the respective faces of my stunned colleagues drop as they witnessed what they likely deemed an improbable outcome. Idiots, that's what they were. But truth be told, I was also an idiot for even bothering to stay. Not long after, the sounds of cracking bones and heavy footsteps began emanating from an adjacent walkway. Along with the rest of the agents, my gaze shifted toward what was sure to be another incoming menace. The locked metal door to the corridor was suddenly dented from the other side. A big fucking dent, mind you. It only took one blow to blast it off its hinges completely. Standing at 6'6", 198 centimeters, and 242 pounds, 110 kilograms, and arriving in a haze of blood, guts, and limbs was the Slash-A-Flick-esque killer, colloquially known as Wirehead. In congruence with his name, his entire head, save for a single eye, was wrapped in rusty barbed wire. He wore a decrepit old leather jacket and jeans, complete with a large pompadour on top. Like an 80 or whatever high school delinquent. Everyone's main concern was the weapon in his hands, a large iron bat wrapped in the same barbed wire on his head. If you didn't die from the impact, unlikely, the subsequent infection would surely get you. And don't ask us why we didn't take his weapon away when we contained him. We did, but somehow, some way, he got it back. These things really can't be helped. What the hell is going on? I thought. Breaches happened, sure, but it seemed as if every fucking void had somehow escaped. How is that possible? In any case, I couldn't afford to think deep into it at the moment. As Wirehead began moving down the mystified agents in his way, I found myself accidentally making eye contact with Lewis from below. I nearly had a heart attack as I began pushing through the crowd, even though I was implicitly certain of the fact that no other location within the chasm would have been much safer. I was still being driven ahead by my fight-or-flight responses, away from that immediate threat. It was kind of funny. I had been through so many life-or-death scenarios that my reaction to adrenaline coursing through my veins had been dulled. Well, it sure as hell got invigorated today. I guess that I wasn't paying attention to my surroundings, because right as I was about to climb a staircase, I felt an oversized arm slam into my chest, knocking me over in the process. I looked up to see another guard, Sade, leering down at me. Sure, I was happy it wasn't one of the voids, but Sade wasn't much more pleasant. What are you running for? He shot me a smug grim. This is a breach, isn't it? Why don't we do our jobs here and fix it? Oh, fuck off! I spat at him before trying to duck past. No luck there. He caught me by the collar and slammed me to the wall. He certainly had the weight advantage. Still, I didn't practice hand-to-hand -hand combat just to be ragdolled by some asshole. I slammed my elbow down into his wrist, which managed to loosen his grip. I followed up with a knee to the stomach and attempted to strike his neck, but then he caught my wrist mid-punch. Nice moves, he said with an obnoxiously sarcastic tone. He took his palm and rammed it into my chin, nearly causing me to black out. In the meantime, Wirehead was getting closer. I guess we'll have to take this up another time, he said. Somebody's got to work around here. I had no idea what he was thinking trying to take on one of the voids, but I wasn't trying to see his delusions through in person. Still in pain from his palm strike, I pulled myself up and began running once more, all while the sounds of carnage escalated around me. But there was a glaring issue. I had no idea where I was going. The exits were surely going to be blocked off from the outside. Do we have some kind of safe room? I thought to myself. No, of course we didn't. We were entirely expendable. They 100% expected us to fight these things head-on, even though there was zero fucking chance of victory on our side. There was only one thing I could do here. Survive until TFENH showed up. Obviously, that wasn't any kind of guaranteed reprieve, but my options were slim. Nevertheless, something rather surprising transpired. 
Amidst the cacophony of frenetic orders from our superiors, a familiar voice snuck in through my radio. Hey, Jason, you alive? It was Sandu. I picked up my radio and isolated his transmission. Yeah, where are you, man? Block C. Got lucky and found something weird. It might save us, though. Come on. Obviously, there wasn't much information there, but it was better than running around aimlessly. Thankfully, Block C was fairly close, so I was able to make it out without running into another void. However, when I got there, it was still as chaotic as ever. I swiveled my head around, trying to spot Sandu. I yelled into my radio, but his response was drowned out by everything around me. As I searched, I began sensing a perplexing, sinister pressure that made it feel as if I were sinking into the concrete beneath me. I hardly had to guess the source. It was Diaxic. Nine foot five, 287 centimeters. I don't know how much he weighs. Diaxic was comparable in appearance to something you'd see in the corner of your room during sleep paralysis. A hulking, faceless figure wearing a sweeping black robe that jerked around in unsettling movements as he, or she, who knows, walked. I wasn't sure how exactly he killed people, mind you. As soon as anyone got within a certain distance to him, they'd freeze in place and begin bleeding from their eyes, and then they just stay that way forever. Obviously, that wasn't something I was looking forward to. As I looked ahead, I could see some unfortunate guards already getting caught in his death zone. In an attempt to avoid a similar fate, I turned the opposite direction and began running. Then, I nearly shit myself. Standing about ten feet away was the undead Nazi. Five foot eight, 173 centimeters, 143 pounds, 65 kilograms. His name essentially told it all. A man wearing a dirty, tattered SS uniform with a cracked gas mask covering his face. In one hand, he gripped his signature Kampfmesser 42 blade that was inexplicably unbreakable, no matter what the hell he tried doing to it. He held a flamethrower hose connected to a massive tank on his back, which sprayed out some kind of scorching black flame that would supposedly yield pain beyond comprehension if you were ever to come in contact with it. You could say that I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. The only other way out was taking the plunge over the rail in front of me, onto the mass of screaming bodies 50 feet below. Before I considered simply saying my prayers, I felt a hand tug at my sleeve from the side, giving me another heart attack. But this time, it was good news. For once, I looked over to see Sandu poking his head out from what appeared to be some kind of hidden door in the wall. Let's fucking go! He whisper shouted before pulling me in. He closed the door behind him, plunging us into complete darkness. What the hell is this place? I asked, hardly expecting a detailed response. Sandu illuminated his face using his phone's flashlight. We couldn't tell you, but it's fucking crazy. I could hear the Nazi beginning to spray his flamethrower from out in the corridor. I suddenly wondered whether or not Diaxic's power would apply to the other voids. In any case, it was better not to be in such close vicinity to them. So I followed Sandu. He led me down some kind of hidden hallway. The walk was rather long, maybe about eight minutes, and I eventually found myself in what appeared to be some kind of surveillance control room. It was still dark, but there was an array of monitors giving off enough light to comfortably navigate around. But here's the strange thing. The place looked kind of haphazard. No chance it was being used by the higher-ups. The monitors were scattered around, connected by a mess of wires to multiple outlets spread throughout the room. There was only one chair. I guess this is beyond explaining? I said. Yeah, no shit, huh? Sandu replied, before gesturing towards the monitors. Check it out. What the fuck did we just find? I took the suggestion, letting my eyes drift over the screens. What I saw would have been normal in any other scenario. 
Each monitor was streaming a different section of the prison, all displaying the utter carnage that was going on outside. The guards were being ripped to shreds, some tried fighting, most were running, but what they had in common was the fact that they were all being utterly obliterated by the voids. I could see the surgeon giving somebody a forced lobotomy, grinning like hell while doing so. At the same time, Morgie was chewing on a severed head like a toy. But then I caught something interesting on a screen below. It was Wirehead and Luz staring each other down. That's when a rather obvious revelation hit me. Of course the voids weren't only going to kill the guards, they were sure as hell going after each other as well. That much should have been apparent from the beginning. I grinned, feeling some kind of obscure hope creeping into my system. That hope was only bolstered when I saw the Nazi utterly dousing Diaxek with a relentless wave of black flames, with the latter struggling to move forward as a result. I guess these bastards can be hurt after all, I thought to myself. But of course, my hopes were merely transitory. I wasn't going to kid myself, even if only one void was left standing at the end of everything. That just meant it'll be the strongest one of them all. And we can't stay in here forever. At this point, my future is uncertain at best. Maybe I'll get lucky, maybe not. But in the meantime, I suppose I'll just enjoy the show. See how things turn out. This place gives you the creeps, doesn't it? I couldn't disagree with Sandu's assessment of the bizarre room we found ourselves in. The monitors only illuminated the area up until a certain point. However, we couldn't see any walls, which meant that the place had to be bigger than what could be seen, either by a little or a lot. We couldn't know unless we decided to venture further into the darkness. Neither of us took that initiative, though, keeping it a mystery. Still, it didn't feel like anybody was in there with us, so we allowed ourselves to relax a bit. I took the first sitting shift, lying back in the chair and focusing on the monitor that I deemed most interesting at the moment. Wirehead vs. Luz. Who was I rooting for? <laughs> None of them. Nevertheless, I was morbidly eager to see these two horrific titans square off. Amongst us guards, we'd created an unofficial tier system, ranking each respective void in terms of estimated threat in comparison to each other. The tiers went as such. Tornado, weakest. Tsunami, hurricane, mid. Earthquake, asteroid, highest, imminent death, get fucked up. They were also divided into subdivisions, high, low, mid, etc. With that said, Luz was around a high tornado, while Wirehead was a mid-tsunami. A glaring difference between them, but not enough that would make it impossible for Luz to win. Wanna make a bet? I asked Sandu, half-joking. He chuckled. You know my luck's cursed, but I guess if we don't make it out of here alive, then my debt's null anyway. Luz was more of a defensive combatant, so it wasn't surprising when Wirehead initiated the conflict. He twirled his bat around, still with remnants of guard flesh clinging on it, in a near mocking fashion at Luz. He was a delinquent after all. Luz hardly reacted, of course. That's just the way he was. In response, he stepped forward, electricity flickering through his hands and up to his forearms. Wirehead followed suit, unleashing a big swing at Luz's head, which he managed to intercept with one of his forearms. Nevertheless, the wire still pierced his skin. Wirehead followed it up with a headbutt. This time, it connected with the flesh of Luz's face, slicing him up rather gruesomely. But despite his seemingly grievous injuries, he remained unwavering. That was the thing about Luz. He was incapable of feeling any pain. 
Like I said, his exact origins remained a mystery, but the one thing that we knew about him for sure was the fact that he hailed from some kind of ancient clan residing in the Arctic Circle. In fact, he was the sole survivor of an incident that decimated his village, and he was hungry for revenge against the unknown force that did it. After taking the headbutt, Luz was now in striking range. He formed his fingers into an arrow shape and drove them into Wirehead's solar plexus before electrocuting his insides. Wirehead quaked in pain as he swung his bat in a frenzied rage, just about demolishing Luz's ribcage. No reaction from him, though. Instead, he took his other hand and wrapped it around Wirehead's neck. Any normal person would have succumbed to Luz's electrical shocks after a few seconds, but of course, Wirehead was no normal person. Despite blood pouring out of his chest wound and the skin of his neck beginning to bubble, he picked up Luz by the throat and slammed him over the steel railing. He fucking broke his back. Even without a sound, the mental audio of the spine snapping reverberated throughout my mind. Unsurprisingly, Luz didn't bat an eye. Wirehead went in for the kill, tossing Luz's body onto the ground before smashing it until it resembled nothing more than a mess of bloody pulp and broken bones. But somehow, he was still alive. Among the gruesome pile, I could see an eye blink. Once Wirehead had exhausted himself from his relentless swinging, Luz took his chance. Using his one arm that hadn't been smashed to bits, he crawled over and grabbed Wirehead by the foot before scaling him up to his neck. Once there, he drilled his fist into Wirehead's forehead, utterly shredding his hand in the process. In the end, it was worth the sacrifice. He was able to electrocute Wirehead's brain, finally causing the behemoth to drop. So, I guess he won? Sandu said. I guess. I had my own reservations about calling Luz's performance a victory. By the end of it, all of his limbs and his spine had been shattered, and not an inch of his body wasn't hosting a series of deep cuts. The good side of his face had also been chipped away to the skull, leaving only his eye and half of his nose intact. And yet, he didn't move with a hint of desperation or concern. Calm 